So when I was 15 years old, I took a trip to China, saved all my paper route money, actually went to Mongolia, and had uh, a little uh, layover in Beijing, China for a few days. So what are you going to do? You're going to see the sights. We uh, rented uh, or hired a uh, tour guide while I was traveling with my aunt, our own tour guide, and he showed us uh, some incredible places in Beijing. Some of you probably seen pictures of, maybe some of you been there before that we went to the Great Wall of China. That was cool. Went to the Forbidden City. That was pretty amazing. And then I remember he took us to this one place called the Temple of Heaven. The Temple of Heaven was just kind of this ancient temple right in the middle of the city of Beijing. It was kind of the center of like the Chinese imperial religion. And so it was custom, and it had been custom for centuries, maybe millennium, I don't know, that on a, two a certain occasions every year, the emperor of China would come to this place and he would make prayers and make offerings for successful harvest. And so here we were at this temple of heaven, and I, I can vividly remember, here's a picture of it. Has anyone been here before? Anyone been to the temple of heaven? So the emperor, he would come to this gate on this occasion twice a year, and uh, at this gate, he would have to walk. It's approximately 360 meters. He'd have to walk down that path. He'd have to walk up those stairs into that temple, the temple of heaven, because he, as the emperor of China, his title was son of heaven. He was kind of like a semi-god himself. And he would go into that temple of heaven, and he would make uh, prayers there. But I still remember the guide telling me that it was not uncommon for the emperor to not make it all the way. He would get part of the way, and then he would collapse. Or he would stumble and fall, and he would have to be carried the rest of the way into the temple. And he said it's not because like, he was really old and frail and couldn't do it. It's because the emperor was almost always really large. Okay? Because, man, back in the day, if you were a really important person... You never walked anywhere, right? The emperor of China never walked. He was too important to walk. He sat on his throne, and if he needed to go anywhere, he would get onto his little throne on a box, and he'd have servants that would put him on his shoulders, and they would bring him everywhere he needed to go. He never walked, except for these two times in the year. He had to walk. And during those occasions, he just, his body physically couldn't do it. And if you're a student of history, you know, like, that's not a very uncommon thing, right? Kings and queens, the most important people, they never walked. They sat. People came to them. In Jesus' day, um, if a teacher was teaching students, it didn't actually look like what we're doing right now. The teacher would sit, and all the students would stand for the teaching. So can we try that? (laughs) Okay, okay. Some of you are like, I think he actually wants us to do it. Thank you. Thank you, people. The rest of you, stubborn people. You're like, Rusty, I don't know how long this sermon is going to go. I'm not going to stand. But that's, so when you picture Jesus teaching, often we think it's like this. No, he was sitting Everyone was standing. Because in that culture, that was just kind of how you would show honor and respect to someone who was deemed important, a teacher or a master. 
And that's what makes Jesus' portrayal of God here so strange. To those who first heard it, so shocking and even scandalous. Over these three weeks, we're going to look at this probably most famous story of Jesus that many of you will know well, called the parable of the prodigal son. And, and, and maybe we know it too, too well. Like, we go through it quickly, we think we know what it's all about, and then we move on. But we're going to slow down over these weeks, and we're going to find that there is more in this story than we see at first glance. That it conveys about who God is, and who we are, and how to live in relationship with God. You know, Jesus told this story in, in response to a certain situation, like most of his stories, and we find at the beginning of the Gospel of, of Luke chapter 15, Jesus was teaching, and he had a whole bunch of people coming to him to listen, different kinds of people. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, like the religious class, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners to eat with him. Hmm. And so Jesus overheard this, and he felt... He needed to set the record straight. You see, these two types of people, the tax collectors, they were traders back in the day working with the Roman Empire, and then the sinners, prostitutes. I mean, uh, they're very different from, from the religious class, right? These were two totally different types of people that they didn't have anything to do with one another, right? Like you had, the, you had the religious people and then what you might call the worldly people or the moral people and then the sensual people, the ones that just pursued their own senses and their own pleasures, right? Did whatever they wanted. And they were like oil and water. They didn't have anything to do with one another, but Jesus had something to do with both of them, which is what made Jesus so strange and which really bothered the religious sort of people. In fact, if you go back a chapter before in Luke chapter 14, we find that Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee around the table with other Pharisees spending time with them. And then if you go a couple chapters later, Luke chapter 17, you find Jesus is in the house of a tax collector having supper with the tax collectors. In fact, not only did he go, he invited himself to the tax collector's house. Maybe you know the story of Zacchaeus. He said, I must go to your house today. He barged right in. Not only did Jesus welcome this sort of people, he actually went to them. And so the Pharisees criticized him. How can Jesus have anything to do with that sort of person? We're going to find next time that the Pharisees and the elder brother maybe aren't all they thought they were either. Maybe they're alienated from God in a different sort of way. But Jesus answers this situation by telling three little stories. And we're kind of focusing on this third story, the big one, the parable of the prodigal son. And so we're going to take a look at each one of these characters, the younger son, the father, and the older son. And last week, if you were here, we looked at this younger son who he just wanted to get away from his father's house. We don't know why. Like, maybe there were too many rules. He wanted to be free from any restrictions to do whatever he wanted to do, to be whatever he wanted to be. He wanted out. And so he kind of wrestled from his father, his share of the state. He took off to a faraway land so he could do whatever he wanted to do because that was freedom to him. The grass was greener on the other side. And so he lived that sort of way, pursuing his pleasure, doing whatever he wanted to do because he thought freedom would be found in defining himself. 
and deciding for himself what the best way was. And so he lived his way. He followed his heart. He did what made him happy. You know, those sort of things that we hear. He did. But it just, it just ended, if you heard that story, it ended in the pig pen. What he realized is there was actually no freedom in that at all. That, it, 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 when, when, when he just did whatever he wanted, it didn't make him happy, it left him empty. And so last week, we, we found that, you know, sin never satisfies. Sin is trying to find in something or someone else what we're supposed to find in God. Sin always leaves us empty. It doesn't make us free. It actually enslaves us to a meaningless life, a life of addiction, a life of destruction. This, this younger son found out the hard way that freedom is actually found in the father's house. When he, to, to, to allow the father to define him and to define the way. But it was kind of too late for him, right? If only he could turn back time, he would. He'd go back and he'd make different choices. But he couldn't turn back time. He was stuck in the situation that he had made and it was kind of too late now, right? That's what he thought. But then he thought, you know what? It couldn't get any lower than this. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here. What do I have to lose? I'm just going to go back to my father's house and see if maybe he might just even take me back to be a hired servant. Like, just the guy at the bottom, right? Just making a few bucks, just enough to feed myself. He thought, I mean, only one of two things can happen. Either my father turns me away, he drives me away, which would have been the expected thing to do when you would have a son that would dishonor you in that sort of public fashion. He would either drive him away, or maybe his father would have mercy and allow him to come back and be a hired servant living in the village, renting a little place, and working at the farm. That's what he was going to do. He's going to go back. And so he practiced the speech, right? And he, and he, 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 he kind of rehearses it. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to set out and I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants, and this is a long journey he's got ahead of him, right? Because he went a long way. He went far away from his father. And you can only imagine he's rehearsing this as he's going, right? Like, maybe if I just have the right words and show the right contrition in my heart, maybe, maybe something good might come of this. Um, so he's, he's practicing. And have you ever been in a position like that? Where, where you did something? You maybe regretted, you made a mess of something, and like usually you stood in front of the mirror and practiced what you were going to say. Have you done that? Maybe something you did, you know, in your marriage? Something, you know, you said to your kids or or something happened with your boss? A friend? That was bad? You know, man, and you just felt like you just... To make things, the only possibility of making things right was just to say the right words. And you felt all this pressure. And so here he is, he's, he's rehearsing this speech. And he makes his way back. And then what happens? It says that his father saw him from a long way off. So this, the train here must have been kind of like Saskatchewan, like very flat, Right? He could see him from a long way. He saw the figure. He recognized it was his younger son. The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he, now here's a really important word, he ran to his son. 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father ran. Now, you have, now, maybe you've read that before and you've just bypassed that. Don't bypass that. You need to understand to, to, to those who heard that story, that was scandalous. Of, of an important old man like this father, that he would run was undignified. It was kind of shameful to gather up your tunic and just to run. And yet the father runs towards his son, when it should have been the son running towards the father. And the, like the order here is really important. Jesus is trying to make a really important point here, right? Look at this. This young son comes, the father runs out, embraces him and kisses him. And then it says in verse 21, then the son said to the father, father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he gives a spiel. He's been practicing. But do you see the order there? God runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, even before the son has ability to utter one word. That's important. You know, we, we think that in order to be loved by God, to be acceptable to God, to be forgiven, we need to do the right things or to say the right things. And that's what religion is. There's all sorts of different forms of religion out in the world which are just, just different combinations of the things that you need to say and the things that you need to do in order to hopefully be acceptable to God. That's religion. Almost like you have to scale a mountain, and if you go far enough and try hard enough, you might get to the top and you might find God there. What Jesus is showing is God, the true God, isn't like that at all. God's love for someone is not a consequence of their repentance, of their contrition. God's love precedes it. God's love comes first. It's not a response to what you do. It's what God has already given to you, for you, before you do anything. This is this radical picture of God that Jesus shares in this story, that His love is not won, His love is not earned. His love is absolutely free to be received. One of Jesus' chief disciples, John, when he was an old man, he wrote a letter that we have in our Bible as 1 John. He says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because He, that is God, first loved us. That's a great one to memorize because it's really easy. He, we love because He loved us first. Friends, I just want to tell you that God is a God who runs. And most people don't think God is like that. And the people of Jesus' day didn't think God was like that. They thought that you would have to come to Him and He might have His arms folded and you might have to convince Him to open His arms. What Jesus is saying is God runs to us with open arms wanting to welcome us in. And so the question is, will we have our arms folded or will we have our arms open to receive? The love and the forgiveness and the grace of God. God's love comes first. It precedes even our own repentance. And so this father runs. The son gives a speech. But the father's not even listening because the words aren't even important. 
He says in verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe. Now, they would have understood what he was saying. Who wears the best robe in the family? The father wears the best robe. Right? That's not like in our house today where, you know, daddy gets the threadbare stuff and everyone else is all dressed nice. The father wears the best robe. So he puts his own robe on the son. And what we're supposed to understand here is like he's, this is, a, this is symbolizing how he is completely restoring his son to relationship with him. This is complete absolution of guilt, complete acceptance. The father, when he puts his robe on him, he's saying, I'm not going to wait until you've paid your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've groveled enough. I'm not going to make you have to earn your way back into a good position to me, I'm simply going to give you my love and my acceptance and my grace free. And so the father covers his shame with this robe and he walks him back into the village where everyone else would have been and, you know, he would have been pretty haggard, ripped clothes, maybe missing shoes, all dirty. But the father didn't want to bring his son looking like that. So way out on the edge of town, he robed them, and so when he came in, he already came in as the son, fully restored, and it was making a statement to everybody, he belongs. He's forgiven. He's accepted. And then the father says, bring the fattened calf, and let's feast, and let's celebrate. Now, the fattened calf, that was something you only like, had on rarest of occasions, the most special occasions. And you almost get the feeling like the father was planning this to happen. He didn't say, oh, can you go find, you know, go to the field, find, like, just find the best looking calf you can and go and, and prepare and let's have a party. He says, go bring the fattened calf, the fattened calf, the one that I have set aside in the hopes that this day would come. Go get it and bring it so that we can party together. The Father was planning for this. And this is a really important thing that we ought not to miss about God, about His nature. God isn't just willing to forgive. I mean, that would be great if it was just that, but it's better than that. God isn't just willing to forgive. God desires to forgive. God longs to forgive us. He longs to accept us. He longs to bless us. He's not just willing, because, you know, sometimes we think, you know, maybe God is just contractually obligated because He made a promise, right? God, you need to forgive me. Would you forgive me? Like you said, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You said that, God. It's like, yeah, oh, shoot. I did say that, I guess, yeah, yeah. Kind of like, I, I don't know, man, if you've ever been in this position in marriage where your wife's like, would you go to the opera with me, men? Rusty, I have two tickets to the opera. Would you go to the opera with me? When's that, when's that, uh, when's the opera, honey? Oh, Saturday night? Oh, shoot, that's a Jets game. Oh, boy probably should. She's my wife. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll go. Oh, thanks, honey. Right? Is God like that? He's just willing to... 
Jesus is saying, that's not like God at all. God, it's not that he's willing. He longs to. He, it's his favorite thing to do. Is to give grace, to restore people. That's his favorite thing to do. What's your favorite thing to do? Don't answer that out loud. I got this weird hobby. It's a new hobby. I collect coins. I don't know how it happened. One day I just woke up. COVID does funny things. I got COVID and it does funny things to you. I started collecting coins and I feel like a total dork. I'm going to the bank in town asking for all these rolls of coins and I'm so glad that there's this mask mandate. So like I'm hoping they don't know, they don't recognize me. Like, is that the pastor from Moonlight Church? What? No. Keep going together. Because I don't know why, but I just have this, this love. I can't explain it. This love of collecting coins. God loves to give grace. God loves to forgive and he loves to restore. That's what Jesus is saying here. That, that, that's the point in these parables. If you go back to like the stories that came before, right? I, I sold, he told these three stories. His first one is about a lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls all his friends and his neighbors and together and he says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, Jesus says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And and then he goes on to tell another story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, oh, a coin collector. Okay. Don't feel so bad. God's a coin collector. That's what this means. When she finds the lost coin, she says, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see this theme in these three stories? Something gets lost, and then, and then the person who lost it goes out to find it and brings it in, and then who rejoices? Is it the thing that was found that rejoices, or is it the finder that rejoices? It's the finder that rejoices. It's the finder. It's God that's the one that rejoices. It's God that's the one that throws the party. And this is the irony because Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who are like, you're going you're gonna to like accept people like that? He's saying, you're missing out on the party. God seeks. He goes out to find and rejoices when he finds, when one who is lost is found. All of heaven, you know, the Pharisees were like this, and all of heaven's throwing a party. Because God isn't just willing to forgive, that's what God loves to do most. And so some of you, maybe you're at a point in life where you're just not sure, like, at this stage of life, where you're at, doing what you've done. Maybe you're, you're like that younger son sitting in the pig pen going, if I could turn back time, I would have done things differently, but I can't, and so I'm stuck here. And what Jesus is wanting you to know is that God doesn't, isn't just willing to receive you. God looks for you. He searches for you to welcome you in so that you might know the freedom of His love, His acceptance, His forgiveness. That's God. But our guilt tells us 
we're just a disappointment. If I go, I'm, I, I'm just a big disappointment. Um, it's, there's nothing that sh- but shame awaits me. Where I, I better just stay here. I better just stay in this pig pen. Jesus says, God rejoices over those, over sinners who return. He loves to forgive. That means God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of evil. Did you know that? Parents, you ever, you ever had the kid go, so dad, so God, so God forgives. So like, what if someone did this? And then paints the scenario of some terrible things. Would God forgive them? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what Jesus is saying is that there is no end, there's no bottom to the well of God's grace. Because He's not just willing to forgive, He longs to restore. He longs to give life. And so the younger son, he discovered that not only was there food to spare in his father's house, but there was grace to spare for him as well. And in that sense, the younger son, he's not the only prodigal in this story. Now, if you kind of know the story and you know the word prodigal, you probably use it as like someone who goes wayward, right? And some of you, maybe you've got prodigal children in your house. You have a children that's maybe grown and isn't walking with God, and you just, every day you're praying, God, would you bring my son, would you bring my daughter back? I know there's many of you in, in this church that are praying that prayer, and so you ought to, a prodigal son. But that word prodigal doesn't actually mean wayward. Here, that's not what that word means. The word prodigal literally means extravagance without regard for the cost. See, that prodigal son, he went out and he, 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 he spent it all. He was prodigal. He spent it all. To be prodigal means to spend everything you have. And what, what Jesus is saying is God is a prodigal God. God is a prodigal God. His grace is free to us, but it's not cheap. God's grace is the costliest thing in the world. This is how Paul, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. I love this verse. It's one of my favorites. Just look at it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus, God the Son, comes down to earth and takes on flesh. He he becomes one of us and and He lives our life. He faces our temptations. He goes through our suffering. And then as a man, He's arrested, even though He's done nothing wrong, and He's mocked and He's beaten. And ultimately, He's hung up and He's nailed on the cross to die to pay for sins he never committed. And on that cross, he looks up to his father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to that question. He knows why he's on that cross. Because he would then say, Father, forgive them, looking down on the people doing it, looking down on us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
And then in the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus utters those words, it says that the soldiers who had stripped him of his robe tore up his robe and divided it into pieces. I was thinking about that. I thought, what does that mean? What it means is that the one true Son of Heaven, the, the one true Son of God, is stripped of His robe so that God could put it on us. On that cross, Jesus took our place. He bore our shame. He bore our guilt. He paid our debt to God so that we could be accepted to God. So that we could have the life that God created us to have, a life that sin robbed from us. Jesus died. God gave everything he had to give to restore us to him. That's what that verse means. He became utterly poor so that we who are poor might become rich. God paid the highest cost for this grace that he offers to us for free. That's what this is about. This little piece of bread and this little cup symbolizes that grace, that cost that God paid for us so that He could give His grace freely for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a new life, a life that comes to us through faith in Jesus. God's arms are open to offer. So my question for you is, do you need to open your arms to God? God's arms are not folded. God's arms are open to us, but are your arms open to Him to receive the grace that He longs to give to you? If you don't, if you don't have a little communion kit, you'd like one. If you just raise your hand, the ushers will make sure you get one. You don't have to take one. If you want to peel off that little cellophane wrapper on the top and there's a little piece of bread in there. You know what this is? This is a little taste of the feast. The Bible again and again portrays the kingdom of God like a feast around a table. A place of belonging a place of life and rejoicing. And this is a little taste of the feast, just a little taste of the feast that is the kingdom of God. And so those first Christians, when they gathered together kind of like this, they didn't have these, but they did something like this. When they took communion together, they called it the love feast because it was a place where they were reminded of and, and, and kind of lived out the love that God had for them and the love that they had for one another. This morning, this is a reminder of God's love for you. It's a reminder that it's not your repentance that causes God's love for you, but it's the reverse. It's what God has done for you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is about God's love for you freely given that gives you the opportunity to say yes to God. Yes, I come home. I give you myself. 
It's also a reminder that we're not the only one invited to the party. That this feast is open to all people. And so as we take this together here in a moment, uh, you know, it really is, it's a call to receive God's grace. And maybe some of you need to receive God's grace. Maybe you're carrying guilt that you need to give to God and just believe that you're forgiven. Ask for His forgiveness and give that to Him. Maybe you're someone who's never given your life. You've never trusted in Jesus. You've never repented of your sins. You've just been doing life your own way and you find yourself in the pig pen and something needs to change and it can change today. Maybe you need to say, God, forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you. I want to do life your way from now on. I want a new life. And it's also a call to extend God's grace to one another. I don't know, is there some relationship in your life right now that requires grace? We're called to have the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ had towards us. This is what you parents who have dedicated your children, this is what it looks like to be a godly mother and a godly father. To be to our kids what God is to us. And so this is what I want us to do before we we drink together. I want to put a picture up here. This is a painting. It's a painting by Rembrandt. And one of my favorite authors, a man by the name of Henry Nouwen, who's now passed away, he loved this painting, and I'm not sure what museum it's hung in Europe. But routinely, he would make a trip to this museum, and he would sit on the bench in front of this painting, and for hours, he would just look at the painting and allow the reality of God's grace to kind of sink in. And so in this picture, you have a few people. You have the father receiving the son, the younger son. And you have the the older brother looking on, pondering what this means for him. And so I want to invite you into a moment of reflection on this. Just look at the painting, talk to God, and just meditate on the reality of God's grace that Jesus has shown us in this story. And respond to that however you need to. at the love of the Father over the Son. That's God's love for you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it and He said, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. Remember my love for you every time you eat of it together. Let's remember. You can peel that wrapper off your drink. 
I just want to give you another moment of reflection here. I want you to keep looking at that picture. And I want you to look to the, to the older brother standing off to the side who's having to decide, is he going to join the party or is he going to stay on the outside? Will he live by grace and give it like the Father gives? So look at him and just, again, think, is there any way in which you need to be extending grace in some situation around you right now? To live like the Father. Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember my love for you every time you drink of it together. Let's remember. Father God, we thank you that you are not the God that the Pharisees thought you were. We thank you, God, that you are a God of limitless grace, not only open and willing to forgive, but longing, desiring to bring us in, longing to forgive us, longing to take away our guilt, longing to restore us, longing to give us a new life. We thank you, God, that you seek after us and you sought after us through your son, Jesus, who has made a way back where it looked like there was no way back. You made a way back through your son into your home, into that place of belonging and acceptance and that new life. And I just pray, God, that uh, we would walk that path. We would live in your house. We would know your grace and that we would be those who take that grace and live by it and give it to those around us who need it and in do so honor you and your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.